Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, March 27th, 2015. No theme today. It's hard to theme a Friday. Oh yeah, and we're coming up on our worst Easter sermon of the year contest. As they say out here in North Dakota, Ufta. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. Slow down and <clears throat> slow down, stop, open up your Bible. And what we try to employ here is sound biblical exegesis, good hermeneutics, you know, basic concepts of you know, reading comprehension and uh, putting passages back in context so that you can see what God's word really says. And over and again, you know, kind of the thing I've been the drum I've been beating on a lot lately is is that listen, what the Bible says is so much better way better than the messages you're getting from the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and people who call themselves prophets, you know, folks like that. And uh, so what we're going to do today, now I said it's it's difficult to theme a, a Friday episode uh, due to the fact we have email, and email is going to be all over the place. And so uh, what we're going to do today, we're going to start off uh, first half of the first hour. We have a Perry Stone update and a Cindy Jacobs update. Yeah. Yeah, hang on to your hats. Both of those are going to be, well, just oh so interesting. And then after the first break, we have email. And then in uh, hour number two, we have a fantastic sermon to end the week off with as we get ready to go into the week prior to Christ's uh, crucifixion, you know, where we recognize it, uh, you know, Good Friday and Easter. And the name of the sermon is The Glory of the Cross, and it was preached years ago by the late Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I think you will find it just an edifying and good sermon to uh, to end the week off with. And uh, since we're going to uh, get right to it, because I'm thinking if I don't get started, we're not going to be able to get everything done on time. We're going to get right to our Perry Stone update, which requires us to do this. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. Is it wetter underwater if you're there when it rains? Is it 
shorter to New York than it is by plane. Between myself and I, I wonder who's the dumber. Is it hotter down south than it is in the summer? I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulder is so loose, and I ain't got since God gave a goose. Lord, I ain't crazy, but I'm a nut. All right, that's Leroy Pullins, and uh, I'm a nut. That's our uh, Perry Stone update. So uh, a couple of years ago, Perry Stone appeared at a conference at Abba's house in, uh, I think, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the name of his uh, appearance, well, he was at the Fresh Oil New Wine Conference. And during, oh man, during his appearance, uh, he was talking about generational acceleration, apparently prophetically speaking, you know. Uh, did you know that Perry Stone uh, claimed to be a prophet? Well, if you didn't know that, well, then uh, uh, this uh, installment of our latest Perry Stone update will come as something of a shock to you. So without any further ado, here's Perry Stone and generational acceleration from the 2013 New Oil, uh, Fresh Oil New Wine Conference at Abba's house. Here we go. Gener- oh, I just heard a word. Generational acceleration. Generational acceleration. Here's what. Well, it didn't take long there, did it? <laughs> yeah. I think that's his version of speaking in tongues. Whoa, I just got a word. Whoa, download. You know, what would Heidi Baker say? Oh, I know. She'd say, Shabba. Anyway, so Perry Stone, I didn't even realize that he was actually. Uh, within the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. I mean, I just didn't know that. But, uh, yeah, so here at Abba's house, he's, uh, he, oh, he got to work. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we continue. Everybody ready? I'm, I'm done. Romans 9, 28. He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Another translation, for the Lord will execute his sentence on earth quickly and speedily. Another translation, for the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. Number one, the word cut short means to contract something by cutting it. It means to take a section out of a garment, pull it together, and stitch it together. Number two, it means to press time together. More will be done in a short time. Number three, I wrote this down. What normally would take you years... To do, accomplish, and finish is going to happen in double time. Wow. I mean, he's prophetically getting this word from God. Generational acceleration. Things are going to happen quick, you know. I got to do this. I had no intent of going this direction. Had no plans to go in this direction. But I don't know. I just spoke this, and I, it's prophetic. He's a prophet? I, I had no idea. Um, some of you see the next generation being reached, and you feel a little bit left out. Because I'm explain something. Every generation has their own shout. Every generation has their own style of preaching. Every generation has their own style of music. And sometimes when those styles shift and from we go from preaching to teaching or from teaching to actual preaching or we go from an upright piano with just guitars to a whole band or we go from southern gospel music to contemporary music or from contemporary to praise and worship, it, it, people get in the mix and they, they feel left out. Now, I don't know who this is for, but I'm going to tell you something. 
Uh, so he's got he's got a prophetic message from God for somebody, but he doesn't know who. I want I want God to renew the spirit and the mind in some of you who are over fifty. I'm serious. I'm serious. I do not, Pastor. I just feel this. Oh, he's got he's got another download coming in. I want you just to be a church of church seat warmer. And, and, not, and not be someone, you're faithful. Yes, you're faithful. You're givers. My Lord, if it wasn't for the 50 and older crowd, I'd be off TV, wouldn't have a building built. You're the givers. But God wants you more than just the givers. And he wants you more than just the people that are faithful to come to church and say, well, I'm here, praise God, with you, Pastor. He wants you involved in what he's about to do. There has to be a, there's a whole generation that 60% of the kids don't even have a mom and dad, for goodness sake. There's got to be some mature moms and dads that kids can look up to. That these youth can look up to as a mother and a father who truly loves them. Not for an interior motive because he really loves Okay, here's what we're going to do. I don't know who you are, where you're from. But I want, I'm not asking everybody to come. But if you're one of those that say, Perry, when you got to that last part, I have felt left out. I have felt like, you know, what am I here for? What's my whole purpose? Okay, maybe you've been there. Huh. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. I feel the anointing. Uh Oh, he feels the anointing. Pray for you tonight that feel like that you're like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you just need a absolute. You want a renewal of your vision. You want a renewal of your of your your walk. You want a renewal of your commitment. You just want to say, God, I want to I want to be renewed. Come on. Come on. You're here. I know you're here. I know this service is for you. The Holy Spirit put this in my heart for this. This is for you. Hallelujah. Yeah. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. All right. So apparently God, the Holy Spirit, speaks directly to uh, Perry uh, Stone, and he gets uh, prophetic updates and can feel the anointing and stuff. I, I did not realize uh, just how far astride of uh, biblical Christianity he had <clears throat> drifted. But uh, yeah, that probably explains why he's a nut. Talking about hearing from God, by the way, we're going to segue now into a an update from uh, for well from Cindy Jacobs and her appearance at the Women on the Front Lines conference. And uh, have you ever wondered wh- where did Cindy Jacobs get the belief that she should be a preacher? Well, she actually tells that story at uh, Patricia King's Women on the Front Lines conference. But uh, since we're doing an update uh, regarding uh, the New Apostolic Reformation, this is not just Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. No, you know, see, you got to understand that uh, Cindy Jacobs, she's one of the generals. Uh-huh. And the generals, uh, well, they're all about you know conquering the seven mountains and making God's kingdom come to earth kind of thing. And so uh, we've got to do this right. So here's our uh, Cindy Jacobs New Apostolic Reformation update music. Jude Lane, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. Elaboratory mice. They're pinky, they're pinky on the brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. They're pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. 
They're Mickey and the Brain, 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 Brain. So here's the uh, prophetic conundrum that I uh, present to you at the moment. What happens when you claim to be receiving prophetic revelation from God the Holy Spirit and what God the Holy Spirit is telling you to do contradicts what God's Word says? Mm -hmm. What do you do? Well, I'll give you the biblical answer. Whatever it is that's talking to you, you tell it to go away. And in the name of Jesus, you tell it to to leave. And then you pray to God that whatever it is that's uh, harassing you in this way, that, uh, you know, probably demonic kind of thing, that you you ask to be protected from it. Because God the Holy Spirit never contradicts the written Word of God. God cannot lie. And so because God's Word clearly reveals that women cannot be pastors and preachers they're not to teach in uh, in God's uh, in God's church when you know that includes kind of mixed company if you would men and women you no know, women are not permitted to do that they're not allowed to be preachers but uh, Cindy Jacobs claims that she has this, uh, a calling from God to be a preacher and so you're going to hear from her you know the cl- all of this these claims of direct revelation from God where what God is revealing to her flat out contradicts what's written in the Word of God. Here's uh, Cindy Jacobs from the recently concluded Women on the Front Lines conference explaining her testimony along those lines. Here we go. I remember as a young woman, I was grappling with the call of God on my life. You know, I was a tiny bit religious. And... I thought that only bad mothers ever, you know, went to work or ever went out of the house. You know, I mean, I was a full-time mother. God gave me these children. I'm going to raise these children, you know. And so, even though God had called me to preach when I was nine years old, you know, I was a children's church pastor. And I was... Did you catch that? God called her to preach when she was nine years old. Why would God call a woman to preach when God's word says that women can't do that? worship leader. You know, I did everything you could do. So I thought, isn't that enough? And then when I had two little children, God began to pester me. (laughs) And he began to say things to me like, take up your cross and follow me. I'm like, I'm following you, Jesus, okay? I'm doing it, you know? And, and uh, then I began to have these visions of preaching in stadiums and people getting up out of wheelchairs and the blind saying, I thought I was hallucinating. <laughs> I mean, who do I? Yeah, you probably were receiving revelation from a source other than the Holy Spirit. You know, everybody I talked to would say women can't preach. I mean, I had, I, who do I talk to? Even my own pastor, you know? Yeah, that's because the Bible says it. It's not like this is just an opinion that guys made up in the church. Actually, this is revealed in God's word. I remember he called the house one day to see if Mike could take the Wednesday night service, you know, because... He couldn't find anybody else. And I said, now at that time I was traveling full time. I said, well, I'll take it, Pastor. And he got quiet. 
And I knew that quiet meant <laughs> I was a woman. So I couldn't take that service, you see. You know, and so, you know, uh, but before that time, I, I was doing the worship. I, I had a great children's church, every kind of miracle. I mean, we're Texans. They come with mosquitoes head to toe. They walk out completely healed. I mean, those kids had faith. No mosquito zone. You know, it was great, you know, and uh, it worked in the culture. But uh, so, you know, so, but God began to deal with me. He began to say, I want you to preach the gospel. Why would God the Holy Spirit tell you to do something that his word says you can't do? The written word, because all scriptures God breathed. Why would God contradict himself? Around the world. And so, one night, I rarely tell this part. I was reading about the life of Sister Amy McPherson. And I got to the part in the book where Sister Amy was put in a room for dead, where they put people to die. And the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, now will you go? I was feeling it. And I realized that I didn't really have a choice. I was going to go the easy way. I was going to go the hard way. And being the bright, educated woman that I am, I said, okay, Jesus, if it's an option of being toast or following you, wasn't that brilliant? So notice, her experience trumps the written word of God. Scripture is clear that when this happens, the person is not actually hearing from God. So I knelt down. That wintry night, I knelt down beside this beautiful blue velvet couch. All by myself. And I raised my hands to the Lord, and I said, Lord... What do you want me to do? And so I did, you know, the Bible roulette thing that some other people said. I don't suggest you do it, but I'm confessing I did it. So I... Okay, so the reason why you're a preacher today in a, in, mm-hmm, is because you did Bible roulette and asking God why he keeps bothering you about preaching. My Bible. And I was saying, God, why me? Why a woman? And I read the passage where it said, does the clay say to the potter, what kind of vessel are you making of me? And then God further used the Bible on me and he said, don't you hate it when he does that? The creator, you know? Anyway, so I was saying, you know, God, if I preach... It's going to be really hard. I'm going to suffer persecution. My children are going to suffer persecution. You know, I live in Texas. Do we remember that? The macho state. Okay, I live in Texas. So- yeah, what about God's, you say it in your word, God, that women can't do what you're telling me to do. 
<laughs> but the Lord said, I said, why me? Take Mike, Lord. I, there, here I am. Take Mike, you know. <laughs> You know, he was so obnoxious. He wanted to be in business. He had to call the business. We didn't even know that was a call, okay? You know, we didn't know we'd work together. But I said, you know, take Mike. Here I am, Lord, send Mike. And, you know, we weren't negotiating. <laughs> I would, you know, I tell you what, you negotiate with God, you always lose. Just skip to the end, okay? And uh, so anyway, I said, Why? He said, so my prophecy will be fulfilled. I said, well, which one is that? And he said, that in the end times, I will pour out my spirit upon my sons and daughters. And he said, if I'm going to pour out my spirit on my daughters, I need a few women. Um, what does God pouring out his spirit on men and women have to do with women disobeying what God the Holy Spirit has said in preaching and teaching in church? Hmm? Now he's using logic on me. Wow. So I knelt down and I lifted my hands to the Lord and I said, here I am. Send me. Oh, man. So there you go. That is the perfect example of somebody's personal experiences directly contradicting the written word of God. And the question is, where are you going to put the authority? Is the authority in the written word of God or in your experiences? If you put your experiences above the written word of God then you are in really huge danger because God the Holy Spirit doesn't lie and God the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. So we've got a huge problem here and I think you kind of get the point of it. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to do some email and then end the hour and end the program, hour number two, with a good sermon. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for 
downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer! Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no sense, no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally 
hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Finding for the Faith could cause you to think that your experience needs to be governed by the Word of God rather than governing God's Word by your experience. By the way, that's a good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And right there in the middle of the homepage, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. Time for some email. have some email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley in the mix here today. All right, let me back off on the email music. And our first email does come from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent, out there in the United Kingdom. And uh, he's commenting on Andy Stanley's deceptive words. This is, in fact, we got two Pastor Charmley emails. Here's what the first one says. Uh, Dear Chris, I'm just listening to your review of Andy Stanley's Da Vinci Code rewrite of church history. I suspect that he's drawing heavily on a work by Frank Viola called Pagan Christianity, but not letting on. Certainly, he sounds much like Viola. By the use of the term the temple model... He is, as you observe, allowing himself to intentionally mix both pagan and Old Testament Jewish elements together to to create something that actually never existed. The pagans, for example, did not necessarily have holy texts, but what is at least as important is what he does not say. An uh, An ancient temple was not a place of congregational worship at all, but a sanctuary where a god or gods dwelt and were served by their priests. Temple worship was primarily the worship of the priests and only secondarily that of the worshiper. Equally important, temple worship was private. That is why the Pharisee and the tax collector could be at the temple together 
offering different prayers at the same time. You went to the temple as a holy place for your private devotion, not to join in a corporate act of worship. Now, this model was indeed adopted in medieval Europe, which is why you have a proliferation of altars and shrines in churches. You can see it in any large Roman Catholic church outside of worship services. People go in and make a round of the uh, shrines, lighting candles, uh, telling their beads uh, and praying to each that that is true. That is the true temple model. It was at the synagogue, not the temple, that the Jews gathered for what in English has been called since the Reformation common prayer. And it is the synagogue, not the temple, that gives the model for Christian worship. We read the description of the temple and before it, uh, and before it the tabernacle, and we are struck with how unlike a church it was. Then we go on to the worship and find again that all is different. Men bring their offerings to the priests, their own personal offerings. Only at the great feasts is there expected to be a great gathering of the people. There is no common place for a sermon, no place for congregational worship at all. And Pastor Charmley, you're, you're spot on right here. He, he continues, So when we look at pagan temples from biblical times, we find again that they are not places of congregational worship. No matter how you look at it, Protestant churches do not function like temples. They are not places for people to come in and do their private devotions, but for a congregation to worship together, which is fundamentally different. Again, in Rome, things are different. The worship of the consecrated host creates a temple-like situation, and where that has been adopted in Anglo-Catholic churches, the same may be seen. In fact, it is sometimes more pronounced as the Anglo-Catholics are not bound by Vatican II, and the cultists of the saints with the many and various side chapels, and it would be fair to call traditional Roman devotion temple-like. But this critique does not touch the churches of the Reformation traditions, and that's where Stanley fails completely, and he knows he does, which is why he must be so inexcusably vague in his accusations. Great email from Pastor Charmley. We have another one in the mix, but I'll get to that in a minute. Next email comes to us from Eric in Wooster, Ohio. And Eric writes, he says, Hey, uh, when I was listening to the story of the anointing of David, something struck me about the word of the Lord as it came to Samuel. Uh, the scripture seems to make it clear that there is a difference between Samuel's thoughts and feelings in God's spoken word to him in 1 Samuel 16. When Eliab passed by, Samuel thought that surely this was the one. But God made him go through all of the brothers and brings in David almost as an afterthought. So we see that Samuel did not go by his own feelings, but by God's word as it came to him. This seems a far cry from the modern Christian spirituality where we're taught to stay close to the Lord, and then whenever we get a thought or a feeling or do something, we assume that it's a direct revelation from the Lord. 1 Samuel 16 seems to make it clear that the word of the Lord came from outside of Samuel's intellect and person and even contradicts what Samuel would have possibly done on his own. I don't believe that God speaks this way in this age, but I know plenty of good folks who seem keen to share a word from the Lord to me and everyone else who has ears to hear. What do you think? You know, Eric, I think you've got a great point, and that is a wonderful way of looking at the details of that passage. So we do have 
uh, Samuel's internal dialogue and God's word, which is external to it, and God's word contradicting his internal dialogue. And so much of what's being passed off as words of the Lord today, well, they... They have their true source uh, in the person's internal dialogue, not the w- true word of the Lord, or their own psychology, or worse, they uh, they may actually have a um, an origin that's <clears throat> apart from uh, the holy, if you know what I mean. Next email. Next email. This one comes from Matt in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And at, uh, Matt writes, he says, So, Phil Johnson tweeted the article entitled, The Church Growth Movement Innovating Like It's 1894 Recently. Nothing new, of course, but it got me to think, has anyone ever held a significant conference to rebuke the seeker-driven growth movement, to expose the theology, and to call its leaders to repentance? I have only been truly saved for a little more than two years, so this very well may have been done already that I'm not aware of. But if not, I pray leaders with the platforms and influence to execute such a conference uh, feel the need to do so. MacArthur had Strange Fire in 2013, and then the recent Inerrancy Summit. Ligonier had a Substitutionary Atonement Conference in 2014, and then after the and and then after their After Darkness Light Conference this year, Liberate, which you were a part of, had their its Finnish conference this year, and so on. But nothing specifically on church growth. I know there are many blogs and video exposés on this topic, but what about a conference calling our Reformed leaders to stand up and to rebuke this movement and to proclaim the true gospel? Do you believe a large conference to focus on this issue would benefit the church? I know I do, starting with how the semi-Pelagian views create the infamous seeker is completely unbiblical, uh, going through its history, leadership, and all of their false premises in ecclesiology and showing how much harm this movement is causing the church and bringing shame on the name of Jesus. Interested in hearing your thoughts, uh, Pastor Chris. God bless, brother. Matt, you know, I think that's a great idea. I'll be blunt. Um, you know, I, what I do here on uh, on the radio here at Fighting for the Faith, I don't quite have the platform to be able to pull off uh, a conference the magnitude of which you are discussing. But my hope would be uh, that, uh, you know, I'll put, in fact, I'll do this this summer. I'm going to see Phil Johnson at the Reformation Montana conference. I'm speaking at it in June. And uh, when I see him, I'll put the bug in his ear and see if... Uh, if maybe the next uh, go around with the shepherds conference you know rather than doing the inerrancy summit or strange fire they can do you know something about you know the seeker driven movement i i think they're the guys to do it and i'll put the bug in his ear and see what he says i i'd be curious to see what he says but stay tuned i i think it's a great idea and i hope it happens okay next email comes from mark in dearborn michigan and uh, Mark is uh, talking about Andy Stanley, and here's what he says. Uh, Chris, I'm a longtime listener of Fighting for the Faith, and I'm currently about a month behind in the podcast, uh, to which I would say, Mark, only a month? <laughs> anyway, I, I sorry, <clears throat> I continue. He says, I just finished listening to the Andy Stanley sermon on the Temple Model, and I have to say that it angered and unsettled me more than any other sermon I've heard reviewed on your show. Um, Mark, I'm with you there, too. Um it really did upset me as well, and that's why I went back and I did a couple of uh, sermons from that series because I think it's that important. But Mark continues, he says, Right out of the gate, I found his arguments to consist of thinly veiled deconstructive attacks on the church in its ancient and proper context. I also couldn't help but think 
about how this clearly is part of his ongoing evolution to what we all know he has already decided to do, and that's embrace homosexuality. Um, Mark, I agree. I, I, I think, yes, in fact, I received an email not too long ago from a listener who told me that I just need to put it out there and say, I predict that uh, Andy Stanley, in the not-too-distant future, is going to come out in favor of same-sex marriage and affirming homosexuality. He's clearly on that path. And you got to understand, somebody doesn't, doesn't begin there uh, like an Andy Stanley. Instead, he, he moves in that direction, and that's the direction he's heading and the attacks that he has been uh, launching against the authority of Scripture and all of that kind of stuff and cr- casting doubt on it, you know, all of that is designed, I think, intentionally to basically lay the foundation that he intends to build on. And ultimately, I believe that he's going to come out uh, as uh, gay affirming. I, I just have no doubt in my mind. I hope I'm wrong, but that would be what I would predict. And I'm not a prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet. So I'm not talking about this prophetically. It's just clear the direction that he's heading. And so many of the listeners of Fighting for the Faith all see it as well. So Mark continues, it just felt to me like a continuation of the groundwork that he's laying to eventually fully come out as gay-affirming and who knows what else. To put it simply, I felt that the sermon was diabolical, and I agree with you when you said it was an all-out attack on biblical Christianity. Having said that, I have a question that may seem to some as paranoid, but I think is the big one rattling around in the minds of most conservative Christians in the U.S. How can we prepare for what is coming in this country to those of us who will hold to the biblical teaching on all these hot-button sin issues? I'm a husband and a father of three supporting my family on my uh, income alone because we live on my income alone. I fear the day may come when people like us will literally be unemployable in this country, we all see what happens to racists who are identified in this country where they are literally drummed out of society for comments they make or thoughts that they uh, or the or or thoughts they have the nerve to express i'm not defending racism, but the model is already there for how we will be treated and viewed if society is successful in equating opposition to sinful behaviors and lust with racism and other forms of bigotry. I love your show and hope to hear your thoughts on what you think is the biggest elephant in the room in this modern world. Well, Mark, I'm going to say this. I mean, I I think uh, American society is heading in that direction, and I think open persecution of Christians is coming. And uh, and although there won't be laws written at first that uh, forbid Christians from speaking what Scripture says regarding same-sex marriage and other sins— uh, instead, the culture will uh, it put its own laws in place by making you unemployable, by cat- basically you know labeling you as a bigot, um, re- you know in order for you to be employed, having to go to um, wh- what do they call it now? Uh, ang- they have anger management courses, so the- I'm sure they'll have um, sexual identity uh, sensitivity training and things like that for those who would dare say that uh, homosexuality is a sin. That's all coming. And and so the way we prepare for this, by the way, is, listen, Jesus is the one who told us this was coming. He told us that this was going to happen, that we would face persecution. And so the idea is, is that we read our Bibles and we trust in Christ to sustain us and hold us and give us courage to speak the truth even in the face of opposition. And the reality is, is that some people will lose their jobs. Other people may lose their lives. 
Um, you know, and uh, when that happens, when Christians start losing their jobs, keep in mind it's the job of Christians to support each other. And so I, what I anticipate is, is that we will face open persecution and people, Christians, will lose their jobs uh, for speaking what the Bible says. Some might even find themselves in jail or being sued and things like that. And when that happens, the body of Christ needs to rally around uh, each of the, of the members who are suffering like that and support them and help see them through. Because, you know, there's many different ways in which we can be taken care of by the Lord, and uh, and we will trust that he will provide for us even in the midst of that kind of persecution. Next email comes to us from Tom Schreiner. He's a doctor in Autobahn, Minnesota, and he's commenting on Patricia King's claim to raising some from somebody from the dead. If you remember back earlier in the week, we played a Patricia King segment where at the Women on the Front Lines conference, she claimed a woman in Canada who was attending the Women on the Front Lines conference in Canada died in the bathroom, was dead for 40 minutes, and she was raised from the dead, and that medical professionals confirmed this by performing blood gas tests on her to see how long she was dead. Well, uh, Dr. Schreiner writes from Audubon, Minnesota, he says, Chris, I listened with amusement as Patricia described the raising of the dead person and how the ER doctor could tell how long she was dead based on lab tests. While I'm not a medical examiner or a pathologist, I'm just a pediatrician of 30 years, there are no blood tests that determine length of dead time. Uh, Medical examiners will use things like rigor mortis, lividity, temperature, etc. I couldn't find any blood test used even on those who are still dead. Why aren't there pictures and YouTube videos, (laughs) etc.? Which is a good point. Um, Because uh, Patricia King... uh, So... Number one, let's get this clear. There are no blood gas tests that somebody could perform to figure out how long somebody's been dead. Such a blood gas test does not exist, according to a man who is a medical doctor. Um, But uh, secondly here is that, remember, Patricia King has made herself something of a celebrity. And she's got her own uh, television program uh, that airs on God TV. And uh, it's called Everlasting Love. She has a website that is all about putting out videos from people who are her ministry partners as well as herself. And so if somebody had been raised from the dead at the Woman on the Frontline conference in Canada, where's the video of the interview with the woman who was dead? You know, and you can just see it. You know, she's she's sitting there and saying, hi, my name is Gloria. And and. I want to tell you what happened to me. I was at the Women on the Front Lines conference, and I went into the restroom to use the bathroom, and, and well, and then I died. And uh, next thing I knew, I was being raised from the dead, but it was 40 minutes later, and there was this woman who was praying over me. And then you can have her testimony on video, and after that, you can interview the doctor who performed the blood gas test, you know, that show, and you can say, yes, and uh, we, we, we brought her in, you know, we... We thoroughly examined her, and, and, and after we conducted our, our blood gas tests on her, we were able to determine that she was dead for 40 whole minutes. We, why isn't there a video uh, for this from the lady who has a, a television program? Good question. Next email. This one um, it comes to us via Kurt, and I'm not exactly where sure where Kurt... Oh, let's see. He's in Phoenix. Kurt, uh, so here we go. Kurt's in Phoenix, and he says, Chris... 
I'm a bit confused between good works and, I guess, sinful lifestyles. I'm listening to a message you posted last week where I read a verse uh, like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It sounds as though uh, those people will not be saved. I know there are two sides to this argument. For example, sin is sin, right? So how can I tell a homosexual that says they are Christian, believes Jesus as Savior, attends the church that they are not truly saved if they don't repent and acknowledge their sexual lifestyle as wrong? If sin is sin, then I live a life of uh, fornication, for example, as a heterosexual. How am I any different? I'm just trying to reason and not struggle in either of the lifestyles. Uh, thank you, Lord. So is there a line here? How? How? Also, I see a few different Lutheran affiliations. Uh, what is the one that you're affiliated with as I'm trying to find a church here in Phoenix? Uh, by the way, the... Um, the Lutheran church body uh, that I am a member of, the church that I serve as a member of, is the AALC, the American Association of Lutheran Churches, which is like <laughs> like 10% of the size of the uh, – that's, that's a lot smaller than that. It's like like 1% of the size of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. I think you have a better chance of finding a Missouri Synod church than you could an AALC congregation, but I am a member of the AALC, which, by the way, is in full altar and pulpit fellowship with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So let's kind of get that one out on the table. So here's the idea is that uh, you know you're kind of asking the thorny question and let me pull up the text that you were uh, referencing which is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 uh-huh 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and you uh specifically cited verses 9 through 11 and here's what it says or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here's the idea. Is that kind of let's get this out on the table. What is the functional difference between somebody who is a christian and who struggles with sin let's let's say we've got a christian brother who has this weird besetting sin and they shoplift all the time okay so you've got you've got a christian brother who's dealing with the sin of stealing and uh and this is his big temptation and there are times when he gives into his temptation and then you have a person who says they're a christian brother and they are a practicing impenitent homosexual, and they say homosexuality is not a sin. Now, notice something. There is a difference between the two, and here's the difference. The one, the person who is struggling with the besetting sin of kleptomania, um, this thief recognizes that his behavior is sinful, and each and every time he is tempted to sin and gives in to the temptation, he goes again and confesses his sin and asks Christ to forgive him. You see, you know, that's what he does. Whereas the person claiming to be a Christian and also a practicing homosexual, well, they're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend, depending on what, you know, their guy or girl. And um, that not only are they not impenitent, they don't even recognize that what they're doing is a sin and they don't actually believe God's word is saying that what they're doing is sinful. We got the there's a qualitative difference there. 
So the idea here is, is that Christians daily sin much, which is why Christ tells us to pray daily, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We struggle against our sinful nature. But the, what, So the idea is, is that a Christian is one who by faith, by the Holy Spirit, through the work of God in our lives, through the work of the gospel, wrestles with and mortifies the sinful flesh and yes, there are times when uh, that person gives in to temptation. In fact, those times are daily. Um, and yet they continually return to the throne of grace and pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The one claiming to be a Christian who is, a, who is you know, same-sex practicing, no penitence whatsoever, they deny what God's Word even says. They're not imp- they're not penitent. They're impenitent, and so impenitent that they've even basically attacked God's word, undermined it, and says that that's not what God's word says at all. Um, they're actually more in line with somebody who's apostate or an unbeliever or a false believer when you do something like that. And what do you do in a situation like that? You preach God's law. And you preach God's law, and you say God's law says this is a sin. It says you, God's right here. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You you are you are not expressing behavior that is conducive of a Christian. Repent, repent, and be forgiven. This is what you're to say. And if they continue to persist in unbelief regarding God's word, well, then in a situation like that, that's where church discipline comes into play. You know, you read Matthew 18. This is where, you know, somebody who, you know, basically continues to be, you know, put on the pretense that they're a Christian and persists in in impenitent sin, they are not to be treated like a believer. Instead, they're to be disciplined and put out of the church. This is what God's Word says. So you got to remember that. So, you know, the problem is, is that when was the last time you saw a church actually kick somebody out and excommunicate them for being an impenitent sinner? Yeah, and yeah, that's kind of the issue. So the problem is, is that the day we live in, you know, because people aren't following what Scripture says to do when somebody's impenitent regarding sin or false doctrine, now it's created this awkward situation where lay people are going, well, I don't know what to do. You know, I kind of thrown up my hands and... You know, I'm I'm confused, and I get it, but the, the answers go back to what Scripture says. You, t- you treat an impenitent sinner uh, in such a way that you call them to repent, and if they won't repent, then you put them out of the church, and you make it, basically make it clear, you're not a Christian. Don't treat them like one. This is what Scripture says. Next email question comes from Moses in Los Angeles, California. Hi, Chris. My parents and I are uh, are Christians, but we don't see eye to eye. They attend a health and wealth-styled church. Many times they start talking to me about some TBN pastor and the stuff they are schlepping. I ask them why they listen to those charlatans uh, to which they are offended and tell me I shouldn't judge and that I shouldn't speak against God's servant, else I kindle his anger. I wonder what your advice would be regarding this. Thanks for your time and keep up the fight. Well, may I suggest a slightly different approach? (laughs) Okay. The, the idea is this, is that, you know, you are concerned about your parents and you ought to be concerned about your parents. They are being deceived, and I would recommend a different approach. Number one, they're your parents. So the commandment that says, honor your father and mother is in play. I know we're Americans. I know you live in Southern California. I know how easygoing we all are, even with our own parents. But the reality of the situation is, is that showing them some honor and respect is an important part of what needs to be done here. So I would recommend going along these lines. 
Listen to them the next time they tell you about some TBN pastor and what he's schlepping. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to actually take the time to listen to them, ask questions, and try to understand the doctrine and the teaching that this TBN pastor is preaching and teaching. And then I don't want you to say anything immediately in that next meeting. Then I want you to go away. I want you to do your homework and do your research, and then I want you to approach your parents this way. Here's how you do it. You say, Mom and Dad, I am so concerned about you. I am, in fact, I, I, I'm, I'm in fear for your eternal soul. I, I, I'm just grieved. I mean, it's, it's, it's troubling me that bad. This is how you approach this. And you say, listen, you told me that such and such pastor on TBN, that I needed to be listening to him, and here's what he says. And you go in and you make sure you understand his teaching correctly, and then you find those parts where he deviates from God's word and twists God's word. And here's what you say. Pastor so-and-so from TBN said this, but God's word says this. How do you reconcile the difference? Ask them the question and then be quiet. Make them answer the question. And then as they struggle with that, you have several different examples. We're talking egregious examples of Bible twisting and things like that. Say, he said this, showing that you've taken the time to listen, but God's word says this. There's a contradiction here. How do you reconcile the contradiction? Ask the question, and then be quiet and let them answer. That will help in in the situation. It's, I can't say that it's the magic bullet. It's not. But approaching your parents differently is going to be... Um, is going to be vital if you want to be able to communicate with them effectively your concern regarding the false teaching that they are being taught, and, and which is the reason why they came up with the pat standard answer about not touching God's anointed. That's that's their automatic defense mechanism that they throw up, which is a, a passage out of context and misapplied here in order to basically say you can't you can't criticize. So the idea is is don't criticize. Instead, what you do is you show. You, that you know what that teacher has taught and that you find the, the passages in God's Word that contradict what that teacher has said, and you're not criticizing, you're asking them to clarify the contradiction and explain it. That is a different way of approaching it, and I think that might help you. In fact, kind of on the... Um, on the uh, kind of in the same vein, I got an email from uh, uh, Raquel, and uh, Raquel writes, she says... Um, I used to be a oneness Pentecostal, but I don't even know it because the nat- I didn't even know it because the nature of Christ was never actually taught. After listening to your show, I appreciate the sound biblical doctrine. I used to uh, that, but I used to question how you could be saved and actually believe the Trinity. I kept praying and started reading my Bible, and I realized that what I was hearing at church wasn't lining up with the Word. Over time, the Lord opened my eyes and showed me and my husband that oneness theology was wrong we still attend our old church uh though for a uh, we did we still attended our old church though for a lot longer than we should have and we were dead because of it week after week of oneness and works we used to think others weren't saved but the lord revealed to us that we were the ones who weren't saved so long story short we have since then repented of those false doctrines and heresies and we know 
uh, and we now attend a real Bible-believing church. We know that we are saved through Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible, dying on the cross for our sins and raising us again. It was the grace of God not speaking in tongues. So this email is getting a little bit longer, but how do I witness to family members like my mother and grandmother or family who still believe in oneness, especially when they think my husband and I are crazy? I think, so uh, Raquel, the idea here is, is listen to my answer to the gentleman from Los Angeles, kind of a similar idea, but the passages you're going to want to go to specifically pertaining the oneness doctrine, um, I find it particularly um, effective as questions along the lines of from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3 where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. When Jesus was baptized, it says the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that was the voice of the Father. So here's the question for the oneness person. Um, you believe that there's one God and one person, and that you know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the three different modes in which God reveals himself, but there's only one person. Well, here's the question. Um, who was descending on Jesus, and who was the one speaking from heaven then? And if and you know the only conclusion you can come up with is that Jesus was engaging in ventriloquism because they don't deny that Jesus is God; they believe he's God. And then another question is, who was Jesus praying to? You know, in the Gospel of John, I think uh, chapter seventeen is where Jesus's high priestly prayer begins. And, uh, you know, Jesus is praying to the Father, and, and Jesus says that when he ascends to heaven, he's going to send, he and the Father are going to send the Spirit. What does that mean? How can you logically explain that if there's only one person in the one God? Doesn't it make more sense to say that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons? So those are the types of questions that you need to ask them, but of course, do it with the biblical text in front of you. Okay, looking at the time... Okay, I'll have to get to Pastor Charmley's second email next week uh, when we do email. So uh, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we get, come back, we're going to end the week off with a good sermon. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable 
or if the concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with a good sermon from Martin Lloyd-Jones, but i got to do this right. Fighting for the Faith, we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust at mljtrust.org. We will be listening to a sermon by the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones entitled The Glory of the Cross, and he will be uh, exegeting, if you would, and going into great depth regarding Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Yeah, I had a tendency and a proclivity for really drilling down into single verses in his preaching, which is, uh, you can do that. So, all I can say is you're going to hear about what Christ did and why it matters, and it's just, just chock full of gospel. So, let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here is Martin Lloyd Jones and his sermon entitled The Glory of the Cross. Here we go. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Galatians in chapter 6 and verse 14, the 14th verse in the 6th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. We come back to a third consideration of this great and most wonderful statement. The apostle here is uh, nailing his colors to the mast, if you like. He's making a great declaration of his own personal position. He's contrasting himself with certain false teachers who glory and make their boast in the flesh interested in themselves and in their own success and the use they can make of other people. The apostle says, God forbid that I should be interested in or glory in anything like that. I glory in nothing. I boast in nothing. Save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now, in other words, as we've seen, he is telling us here and reminding us that the preaching of the cross is, after all, the very essential message of the Christian faith, 
and of the Christian gospel. Now I'm calling attention to this because of this present modern misunderstanding. There's always been misunderstanding about this. The apostle, as I've pointed out, and as you see again, uh, had to write this epistle to the Galatians in the first century because there was misunderstanding about the cross. There's nothing new in this modern apostasy. There's nothing new in this modern heresy. That's what makes it so pathetic that people think it's new, that it's up to date for people to deny this message of the cross and to deny the Christian gospel. It's as old as Christianity itself. Our Lord had a battle against opposition and the apostles, his first disciples and preachers, they in the same way had to battle against misrepresentations of the truth. And so we are compelled to do this at the present time. And my proposition is this. The cross of Christ, the death of our Lord upon the cross, is the very heart and center and nerve of the Christian message. Not only that, as we've seen, it is the one thing that tests us all. And we've got to face it. You see, the cross belongs to history. It isn't a theory, it isn't an idea. It isn't just a message about self-sacrifice. It's more than that. Here is this great historic event. This person, Jesus of Nazareth, was literally taken and condemned and nailed to a cross between two thieves on a little hill called Calvary. And there we are confronted by this historical fact, this historical event. And what I'm trying to say is this, that we, all of us, are in relationship to that. And that it judges us, every one of us. The whole message of the New Testament is to tell us that finally, what decides what we are in this world and in the world to come is our reaction to this cross. Now, this is what makes it of such tremendous importance. Our eternal destiny depends upon the view we take of the death of Jesus of Nazareth upon the cross on Calvary's hill. That's what the apostles say. That's what all the first preachers said. That's what he said himself. That has been the message of the Christian church throughout the centuries. When she has truly been functioning as the Christian church, there has been this unbroken message in spite of heretics and errors and all sorts of apostasies which have kept on recurring and reappearing throughout the running centuries, there has been this continuous testimony to the cross of Christ. And that is why I'm calling your attention to it tonight. Now we've seen this. There are only two ultimate positions with regard to the cross. It is either an offense to us. It is either something that we hate. Something that we ridicule something on which we pour scorn as being an insult to us, or else we glory in it. Now, the apostle didn't merely admire the cross. He glories in it. He bursts of it. Why? Well, because he says it's everything to him. It's changed his life. It's done many things for him. But apart from that, the thing itself, he says, is the most wonderful, the most glorious thing which he's ever seen and ever known. There is to him nothing in the whole wide world that compares with the glory of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now then, it is in order to help us all to see what our position is relative to this cross 
that I am continuing once more to call your attention to it. And I'm putting it in this way. Why does the Christian boast of it? Why must the Christian say that the cross of Christ, the death of this Son of God upon the cross, is to him the most momentous, the most vital of all facts, that there's nothing that compares with it, and that it is to him tonight the most significant thing in the universe? Now, I'm putting that quite deliberately. The Christian is a man who says, I don't care what's happened, I don't care what may happen. Nothing can happen, I don't care what it is. If the bombs are let off, anything you like. Nothing can ever approach in significance to me. What happened there on the cross on Calvary's hill, when Jesus of Nazareth died, and was buried in a grave and rose again and went back to the glory everlasting. Why does he say this? Why does the Christian make his burst in the cross and glory in it? Well, now we're answering that question. My first answer last Sunday night was this. That he glories in it because of what he sees in it. As a spectacle, without going any further, it is incomparable. I quoted those lines of Isaac Watts. We sang them at the end last Sunday night, when I survey the wondrous cross. Well, why does he glory? Well, for this reason. The Prince of Glory died upon that cross. Now, there is a spectacle by the side of which anything that you can think of in history or anything that you can imagine simply pales into insignificance. God dying, the author of life expiring. He who has all power and can hold up the very universe and is doing so, dying in weakness. There's never been anything like it. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gained, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Now then, that's it, you see, this spectacle, the Son of God dying. And all the love and mercy and compassion, the blood and the love flow mingling down. Oh, all that we saw when we looked at this fact that it is the Lord of glory, the Son of God who dies in that way for us. But now, we must proceed. Because you can't say a thing like that and stop at that and leave it at that. You've got to ask a question. Why did he do that? You're quite entitled to put it like that. You say, if that is true, well, why did that ever happen? Well, I say, quite right, you're asking a good question, and there's only one way of answering it. Let's look at again at the cross. Let's survey it once more. You see, when a man like the Apostle Paul glories in the cross, you can be quite sure, my friend, that it is the biggest and the deepest and the profoundest thing, I say, in the whole universe. You know, a casual glance at the cross isn't enough. The saints of the centuries have been surveying it. They've been looking upon it. They've been gazing upon it. They've been meditating upon it. And the more they look at it, the more they see in it. The writers of the hymns have done the same thing. There has been nothing in the whole of human history that has produced such magnificent poetry as this cross of Christ. 
But they've looked at it, they've surveyed it. They haven't just said, oh yes, uh, I know, Jesus died, he was a pacifist and he died and gone on. Or they haven't said like some of us, perhaps, uh, Christian people, evangelical people, say, oh yes, I believe in the cross, I believe Christ died for me, and on you go. Oh, my dear friend, if that's it, you've not seen it. You've got to stop and look, survey. Put everything else on one side and look at it and don't stop looking at it until you've seen some of these profundities. Oh, what uh, Thomas Carlyle described in another uh, connection, infinities and immensities in this glorious cross. So I ask a question. Why? Why this? Why did this happen? Why did it ever happen if you say the Son of God died, the Prince of Glory died? Why? Well, now then, let's look at the answer. We've got it all here in the Scriptures. I'm not going to draw on my imagination. I'm not inventing any answers? You know, my dear friends, the more you know your Bible, the easier preaching becomes. I pity the poor man who's in difficulties about what to preach Sunday after Sunday. Hope something striking will happen in the news so that he can preach a topical sermon. Oh, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. All I've got to do is to hold before you what the scriptures tell us about this, because I know nothing apart from what I find here. I'm as ignorant as everybody else about these matters. If I hadn't got the scriptures, I couldn't preach. I'm simply here to hold before you what the scriptures themselves say. And this is what they say. Why is he there? Well, the first thing they say is, that isn't merely the action of men. Oh, but you say, it's men who are hammering in those nails. I agree. But you see, if you merely say men did that, you're a very superficial observer. Why did men do it? What made them do it? Is there nothing behind men? You see, the whole trouble in the world today is that we're all looking at everything superficially. We're just looking at an action. Then we set up a royal commission to look into and we have a little superficial report. It makes no difference. Nothing's any different. Why? Well, we're superficial in our diagnosis. We're not able to see the depths of things. And it's the same here. Why do I say that it wasn't merely the action of men? Why am I repeating that it wasn't merely an accident? Well, my answer is, of course that it was something that had been prophesied. Why did I read that 53rd chapter of Isaiah's prophecy at the beginning? I had only one reason. It is an exact prophecy of what happened there on the cross on Calvary's hill. I might equally well have read the 22nd Psalm to you. That's another perfect prophecy of the death of our Lord upon the cross on Calvary's hill. It is prophesied many times in the Old Testament, indeed. If you go back to books like Leviticus and books like that, which people say they find utterly boring and they can't understand, well, if you only know how to read them, you'll find they're all pointing to this. Or if you go back to Exodus and the exodus of the children of Israel from the captivity of Egypt, why did they have to kill that lamb, that paschal lamb, as we call him, that night and post the blood on the doorposts and the lintels? It's just a prophecy of this. Everything there is prophesying this. Very well, there's a great fact. And then... You see, that 53rd of Isaiah put it so plainly as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep led. There it is. It's, it's this. Nothing surprising. He wasn't taken by surprise. It was all prophesied long ago. But then, of course, we're not dependent upon the prophecies of the Old Testament only. Our Lord himself made certain very specific statements about this. You remember in talking to that great man Nicodemus, You've got the history in the third chapter of John's Gospel. 
He put it like this to him. He said, uh, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, there's a prophecy of his death upon the cross quite early on in his ministry. He said, you remember that old story in your history as a people, the children of Israel. Snakes began to bite people and they were killed as a result. And the cure was this, a brazen serpent was set up on a pole and lifted up and everybody who looked at the brazen serpent was healed. He says, that was a prophecy of me. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a tree, on a pole, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He wasn't taken by surprise when they took him and crucified him. He told them that it was coming. He goes on repeating this. I mustn't keep you with this evidence, but it is a vital part of this message. There he is, you'll read about it in the 12th chapter of John's Gospel. Suddenly he comes to the end, as it were, and he's ready. The hour, he says, is come. The hour. What's he talking about? He's talking about his death. In a few moments he says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. You remember the context? Some Greeks had come along and they'd approached some of our Lord's disciples and they said, we would see Jesus. We'd like to have a word with him. We'd like to talk with this new teacher. We've been hearing about him and we want to know what he's got to say. You know, this kind of intellectual curiosity and mm, indeed another more general kind of curiosity in a wonderful teacher that's just appeared. And our Lord wouldn't see them. He sent back a message saying that he couldn't see them. And then he explains it by saying... So far, I am only for the Jews, but when I'm lifted up. And John comments in his account by saying, This spake he, referring to the manner of death which he should die. He says, When I am lifted up, then I will draw all men unto me, which means not every single individual that's ever lived. It means men of all nations, not only Jews, but Greeks and anybody else. All nations, men from all nations, I will draw unto myself. When I die, I shall be a universal savior in that sense. He knew it was coming. And he repeats that on many other occasions. Do you remember there was a specific occasion when he turned to his disciples and he said they'd been asking for certain privileges he said, no, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? He's referring to his death. Well, there you are. There's evidence, and I could go on giving you evidence for a considerable length of time, showing you that this is no accident, this is no mere action on the part of men. There's something more here. There's a mystery. There's something behind it. What is it? Well, now, let's... Listen to the Apostle Peter. On the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem, after the Holy Ghost had come down upon the infant church, people came together from all directions, astonished and amazed because they heard these simple and lettered men talking in languages which they could understand. Every man heard them telling in their own languages the wonderful works of God. And they said, what is this? Some thought they were drunk. What is this? Peter begins to preach and he gives them the answer. He says, you know, this is 
something that has been done to us by Jesus of Nazareth. This is the first sermon really preached under the auspices of the Christian church, and here therefore is the full explanation. And Peter then goes on to say something like this to them. You men of Israel, he said, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, listen, him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands, uh, which can be better translated like this, by the hands of wicked men, because the Jews had used the Romans to do it, have crucified and slain. But you notice what Peter says? Him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Yes, says Peter, it was your hands that did it. But it was God who determined it. And God determined it not now but before time. The predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This is something, he says, that God determined in eternity which you have actually done with your own hands now in time. Now, this is so important that it was repeated on another occasion. In the fourth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we find a wonderful prayer meeting being held by the early Christian church. Two of their company, Peter and John, had been arrested, they'd been put on trial, and they had been prohibited to do any further preaching or teaching in the name of this Jesus. The authorities had said to them, look here, we're letting you off this time, but if you go on doing this, well then we'll not only arrest you, but we will deal with you. And they were threatening them with death. They straightly charged them that they should do no more of this. And then we find the apostles going back to their own company, to the church, and they all begin to pray. And this is what they say in their prayer. Having quoted the second psalm, they say, of a truth against thy holy child Jesus whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. They're repeating what Peter had said in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And what is said on both occasions is this. It was actually, of course, physically, materially, the hands of men who killed him. But it was God who had purposed this. They were simply carrying out in time what God had predetermined upon before the very foundation of the world. Now, this is the most important thing that you and I can ever consider. You see what it means. You see what is being said. And you see what light this throws upon all those burnt offerings and sacrifices in the Old Testament. I was reminding you just now that the Paschal Lamb and all the burnt offerings and sacrifices were just prophecies of the coming of the day when the Son of God was going to be crucified. Now you see how all that could happen. 
God decided on this before man was ever created, so he was easily able to prophesy it. He knew he decided before time that this was going to be the way in which men should be saved. God, you see, is omniscient. God knows everything. God knows the end from the beginning. There is nothing outside the knowledge of God, and God knew that man was going to fall before he ever made him. And God has decided upon a plan of salvation before man was ever even made. Now, this is the whole of the preaching of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, puts it like this. He says he's got a wisdom to preach to them. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But, he says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. That's it. That's the very thing that I'm trying to put before you. What does it mean? Well, it means this. And this is the most glorious good news that's ever come into the world. This is why the Apostle Paul glories in the cross of Christ. Here we are, miserable sinners, every one of us. Yes, every one of us. There's not a person in this congregation who isn't a miserable sinner. The whole of the human race is in this condition. Everybody who's ever been born since the fall of Adam has been born in sin, shapen in iniquity. Life has been a misery for that reason. Life's been a trial. Life's a matter of disappointments. Life's a matter of a man doing things he doesn't want to do and failing to do what he wants to do. Life is a struggle. It's a moral problem and a moral failure and a moral difficulty to every one of us. And here we are. Civilization has been trying to put it right. Men have concocted their schemes, planned their utopias, passed their acts of parliament, and we are none the better. We are as bad as we've ever been. More educated, but not more moral. Knowing much that our forefathers didn't know, but still not knowing how not to sin, and how to live a clean, a wholesome, a pure, and a chaste life. Here we are in the same old human predicament. And do you know the message of this, of this gospel? Do you know why Paul gloried in it? It's for this reason. That he has come to see that God has got a plan for this miserable, wretched, failing, sinful world. And it's a plan that he had planned before the very foundation of the world itself. I know of nothing so wonderful in the whole world tonight. You see, that's why I don't preach topical sermons to you. I've got something to tell you that's worth listening to. Topical sermons, what value are they? My comments upon the news, my comments on politics, what's the value of them? Everything goes round in the same old miserable failure. I'm here to tell you something that only this gospel can tell you. That the almighty and everlasting God is concerned about this. It's his world and he's going to put it right. And he's putting it right in his own way. He's concerned about our deliverance and about our redemption. The plan and the purpose of God, him being delivered by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and have killed. But you didn't know what you were doing. You didn't realize that this was a part of God's great and eternal plan and purpose of salvation and of redemption. You see, the cross is the center of God's plan. It's the center of God's way of saving the world. That's why the apostle puts it again to the Corinthians in that first epistle in the first chapter which I read last Sunday night. We preach Christ crucified. 
unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto us which are saved, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here it is in its essence, this cross of Christ. It's the very center and heart of God's eternal plan and purpose. So I want to put it to you like this, this evening. That the apostle gloried in the cross and every true Christian glories in it. Because it is the greatest display and exposition of the character of the everlasting God. That's what you see when you survey this cross. You don't merely see that glorious person, you look behind it. It isn't only the son that's involved in the cross, the father is involved, he's there. Have you ever seen him there? Is there anything higher or more wonderful than to see something of the glory of the everlasting God? It's on the cross on Calvary's hill. You see its most wonderful and amazing display that the world has ever known. My dear friends, all our troubles ultimately emanate from the fact of our ignorance of God. That's the real trouble in the world tonight. Men and women don't know God. There are some who say they're not interested. There are others who are equally bad who simply put up their own ideas of God. These men who speculate philosophically about God. These are the popular writers of today. God is depth, not up there, not out of depth, and so on. That's sheer speculation. They've got no authority whatsoever. It is simply what they think. That is sheer ignorance of God. No, no, we cannot know God unless he reveals himself to us. Why? Well, because God is. Oh, and what he is, what do we know? Do we know ourselves? Does your psychology really explain you to yourself? Does all your modern knowledge really help you to know yourself and your neighbor? Does it really give you an understanding of life and of death? Of course it doesn't. Our ignorance is appalling, and the more we learn, the more we see our own ignorance. How can a man know God? Immortal, invisible. God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. What's the use of your jodrell bank when you're looking into infinity and eternity? No, no. Send up your astronauts. Let them look with all the power that they can command. They cannot possibly see him in light, ineffable. Immortal, invisible. God only wise in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Do you think you can see? Of course you can't. We are incapacitated at the very beginning before we make any attempt. We see parts and portions in creation. You can see something of him. As the apostle puts it in the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans, by examining nature and creation, you can see something of his eternal power and Godhead, his creatorhood, as, you, as it were. You see the marks of his fingers, and you know that God, as Sir James Jeans put it, is the great scientist, the mastermind and mathematician. You see it in the symmetry, in the balance, and all the form and the perfection. You see it in the seasons. We've been singing that harvest hymn. 
and in the seasons you can see him, spring, summer, autumn, winter, and his gifts to men, and all his kindness and goodness. Yes, but you see, you only see a part of it. You only see God's power, God's greatness, God the creator. And then you can see something of this in history. Read the history of the nations and especially the Jews. You see something of the hand of God as the Lord of history. And then you see it also in providence, in his providential dealings with us. But you see, when you've seen it all, you've seen so little about God. You see that there's great power, there's great ability, there's great order. But oh, you don't know God as Father. You don't know God in his heart. You don't know God in all the glory of his fullness. Well, John has put it, I think, perfectly to us in the prologue of his gospel when he says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No man hath seen God. No man can see God and live. God being what he is, it's impossible. And what do we know? We can know nothing except to be revealed. And this is the message of this gospel, that God in his infinite grace and kindness has revealed himself, not only in nature and creation, not only in providence, not only in history, but all beyond it all, in his Son, who came from the eternal bosom to teach us about him and to tell us about him and supremely. On the cross on Calvary's hill, that is why it's so glorious. Everything is leading up to this. There are hints and suggestions, but here it bursts upon us in all the blaze of everlasting glory. God really revealing his heart to us. Now our Lord again himself had said that this was the case. He put it like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, which means no man come, can come unto the Father, but by me. Yes, God the Creator, God the Almighty, God the Controller of History. But God as Father, you'll never know him except by Jesus Christ and in, particularly by his, in particular uh, by his death upon the cross on Calvary's hill. If you want to know God, if you want to know the everlasting and eternal God, this is the way, this is the only way. Look there, gaze, meditate, survey the wondrous cross and then you'll see something of him. What do you see? Well, let me but summarize it for you. The first thing you will see is the grace of God. What's grace? Now, it's a great word in the Bible, isn't it? The word grace, the grace of God. What is grace? Well, grace is most simply defined in these words. It is favor shown to people who don't deserve any favor at all. That's grace. And you know this message is that any one of us is saved and put right for eternity solely and entirely by the grace of God. Nothing in ourselves. By grace are he saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. My friend, isn't it about time we all admitted it? Do what you like, you'll never save yourself. 
You'll never save yourself from the world, the flesh, the devil. You'll never save yourself from your own misery. You'll still less save yourself from the law of God and judgment and hell. You can't do it. Try. Men have tried it throughout the centuries. They've all admitted failure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. And the best and the most honest souls the world has ever known have been the ones who've tried that route most assiduously and have been most ready at the end to confess their failure. No, no, there is only one hope for us tonight. It is the grace of God, which means that in spite of our being what we are, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son he did it in spite of us. We deserve nothing but hell. None of us tonight deserves anything but hell. If you think you deserve heaven, take it from me. You're not a Christian. Now, that's a very good definition of a Christian. Any man who thinks that he deserves heaven is not a Christian. But any man who knows that he deserves hell is a Christian. Out goes all your righteousness. It's all by grace and entirely the mercy and the compassion and the grace of God. My friends, it is God who in spite of us and in spite of the world being what it is, sent his own son into this world and then sent him to the cross by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He went to the cross. Why? Now, here's the question. Why? You say, all right, I like this idea of grace. I'm glad to hear you saying that God still loves us in spite of all our unworthiness and sinfulness. That's wonderful. But why the cross then? Why doesn't God in his love just forgive us? Why? Ah, look again at the cross, my friend. Take another survey. Examine it again with greater depth and profundity. And having seen the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the kindness of God, look again and this is what you'll see. You'll see the righteousness of God. You'll see the justice of God. You'll see the holiness of God. And it's the place of all places in the universe where these attributes of God can be seen most plainly. God has revealed something of his righteousness and his justice and his holiness in the law that he gave to the children of Israel. The Ten Commandments proclaim the righteousness and the justice and the holiness of God. Oh yes, and his punishments of the children of Israel, they display the same thing. But if you really want to know anything about righteousness and justice and utter absolute holiness, You'll have to survey the wondrous cross, and there you'll see it. For what the cross tells us is this, that God hates sin. God hates it. God is the eternal antithesis to sin. God abominates sin with the whole intensity of his divine and perfect and holy nature. God not only hates sin, God can't tolerate sin. God cannot compromise with sin. 
That's what we want, of course. We want God to compromise with sin. We want a God who says, all right, I know you've done this or that, but it's all right, slip into heaven. You know, God can't do that. God can't compromise. There is no compromise between light and darkness, good and evil. They're eternal opposites. And God, because he's God, he revolts against sin. He hates it. He abominates it. And God must punish sin. That is what the Bible means when it tells us that the wrath of God is against all sin and unrighteousness. The wrath of God, says the Apostle Paul to the Romans, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men that hold down these things in ungodliness. Hold down the truth in unrighteousness. My friend, God is so holy. Who can imagine this? We are so imperfect. We are so impure. Our minds are so polluted. You and I can't think of absolute purity, absolute righteousness, absolute holiness. We may talk about these things, but we can't imagine them. But God is all that. And because he's all that, he can have no dealings with sin. And he's told us that. He has said that he will punish sin, that he must punish sin. Why? Well, because sin is what it is. It is rebellion against God. Don't think of sin merely in terms of actions. That's what we're all telling to do at the present time. The newspapers are placarding certain actions in their mock self-righteousness. But that isn't what is meant by sin. Sin is not merely a matter of actions. Sin is a matter of attitude. And what makes sin sin is this, is that it is rebellion against God. It is disobedience of God. It is trampling upon the sanctities of God. It is unrighteousness. It is transgression of God's law. Indeed, it's worse. It is a hatred of God. The natural mind is not merely a mind that makes a man do things that he shouldn't do. The natural mind is enmity against God is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's it. And it is because man in sin is such that he regards even the gospel as foolishness. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is sin, this is the trouble with men, that he's so steeped in sin and so perverted by it that when God does the most glorious thing even God can do, the natural man laughs at it as foolishness and dismisses it with derision. That's why God hates sin. It's because it hates him. It is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now then, the cross tells us that because, you see, it's because of that the cross is necessary. Here is the problem. How can such a God possibly forgive any man? How can there be any hope of heaven for any one of us? For we've all sinned. We are all by nature the children of wrath, says Paul to the Ephesians, even as others. We are all naturally God-haters. And if you haven't realized that, you haven't known these things very deeply, my friend. Don't come and tell me, you know, I've always loved God. You haven't. You were born in sin, shapen in iniquity. And if you think you've always believed in God, it's because you've had a God of your own creation, not the God of the Bible. This is a universal statement. And so here's the problem. How can this holy, righteous God possibly forgive anybody at all? and remain what he is. 
And what I see in the cross is this, God's way of solving the problem. So I see the wisdom of God. If you want to know anything about the wisdom of God, look at the cross. Here is God's solution to the problem that he saw before he created the world. That man is going to sin and yet God wants to forgive him. How can he? God in his eternal wisdom thought out the way and the plan. O oh, loving wisdom of our God when all was sin and shame. A second Adam to the fight. And to the conflict came. You know, if you want to know anything about the eternal wisdom of God, look at the cross. That's why Paul says it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. There you see the mind of the eternal, solving the eternal problem. How can God be just and at the same time forgive anybody? How can he bring these things together? Righteousness and mercy, holiness and love. Is it possible? And the answer is on the cross. And what you see there is eternal wisdom. This is why Paul glories in the cross. He's seen things there that he'd never seen anywhere else. He was a wonderful Pharisee. He was a very good man, a moral, religious man. He studied the scriptures. He thought he knew all about God, but here he discovers he knows nothing. All his knowledge has become nothing to him. It's here he sees the wisdom of God providing, making a way whereby God can remain God and yet forgive us in him. So I see there the wisdom of God as well as the grace of God and the purpose of God and the mercy and the compassion of God. But I see another thing. I see the immutability of God. Which means that God doesn't change and cannot change. You see the God of these moderns is a God not worth worshipping. He's a God who changes and accommodates and you never know what he's going to do next. He changes every century according to the scientific knowledge and philosophical speculation. That's not God. God, said the fathers as the Bible says, is immutable, he's unchangeable. He doesn't change, he cannot change, he cannot deny himself. He is what he says he is. And if there is one place in all history and in the whole of the universe where you see the immutability and the unchangeableness of God more clearly than anywhere else, it is on the cross on Calvary's hill. There is his own son. Is he going to change? Is he going to modify? No, no. He says what he is and he does it. He says that he's going to punish sin. And when even his own son makes himself our representative as sinners, he carries out his word. He doesn't modify it. Even though it's his own son, the immutability of God and the absolute perfection of all his ways. But that leads me to the last thing, the most wonderful thing of all, which is the love of God to us. It's not surprising that this apostle should say to the Romans, God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do you see the love of God on the cross on Calvary's hill? Oh, says the modern men, I see it in this way, that though men murdered the Son of God, rejected him and murdered him, God in his love still says, all right, I still forgive you. Though you've done that to my son, I still forgive you. All right, my friends, that's a part of it, but you know it's the smallest part of it. That's not the real love of God. 
I have reminded you already that a God wasn't a passive spectator of the death of his son. That's how the moderns put it, that God looked on in heaven, uh, down upon it all. He saw men killing his own son, and he says, all right, I'll still forgive you. But God was passive. God was inactive. God was responding passively to what men did. Oh, how important we think we are. You know it isn't we who did that. It's God, the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. If you really want to know what the love of God means, listen to this. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned sin in the flesh of his own son. This is the love of God. That's why I read to you that 53rd of Isaiah at the beginning, that wonderful prophecy of what happened on Calvary's hill. You notice how he goes on repeating it? Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. These are the terms. And they are nothing but a plain, simple, accurate, factual description of what happened on that cross on Calvary's hill. Listen to Paul summing it all up. He, God, hath made him the son to be sin for us. Do you realize what I'm saying? Men and women, this is the whole trouble of the world. It's damned in its blindness. God hath made his own son to be sin for us. Though he knew no sin, in order that he might be able to forgive us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What's it mean? Well, let me give you another quotation from this Apostle Paul who so glories in the cross, and this is why he glories. In Romans 8.32, he puts it in these words. He, God, that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now, that's a wonderful description of what happened on the cross. God, in his great love to us, delivered up his only begotten, dearly beloved son, who'd never disobeyed him and had never done any harm to anybody. He delivered him up for us to the death of the cross. But you notice what he adds. He that spared not his own son. What's he mean by that? He means this. God had made it very plain and clear that he was going to punish sin by pouring out upon sinners the vials of his wrath. He was going to punish sin in this way that men should die. The wages of sin is death, and God pours out his wrath upon sin, and it means death and destruction endlessly. And what we are told there by the apostle is this, that after he had laid our sins upon his own son on that cross on Calvary's hill, he didn't spare him any of the punishment. 
He didn't say, because he's my son, I'll modify the punishment. I'll hold a little bit back. I can't do that to my own son. I can't regard him as a sinner. I can't smite him. I can't strike him. He didn't say that. He did everything he said he'd do. He didn't keep anything back. He spared not his own son. Though he's his own dearly beloved son, he keeps nothing back. He pours out all his divine wrath upon sin, upon his own dearly beloved son. So you see the son crying out in his agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he literally died of a broken heart so that when they struck him in the spear, out came water and blood. The heart had burst and the blood had clotted and there it was serum and blood clot because his heart was literally ruptured by the agony of the wrath of God upon him and the separation from the face of his father. That's the love of God. That's the love of God to you, my friend, a sinner. Not that he looks on passively and says, I forgive you, though you've done this to my son. No, no, he does that to the son himself. He does to the son what you and I could never do to the son. He pours out his eternal wrath upon him and hides his face from him. His own dearly beloved, only begotten son. And he did it in order that you should not receive that punishment and go to hell and spend an eternity in the misery, the torment, and the unhappiness of hell. That's the love of God. And that's the wonder and the marvel and the glory of the cross. God doing that to his own son in order that he might not have to do it to you and to me. And in order that the message of the cross might be preached, which is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believe that he died your death, bore your punishment, suffered in your place, that the chastisement of your peace was upon him. Believe that. And you are immediately forgiven. That's the glory of the cross. God's wisdom devising the way, God's love carrying it out, even though it means that, and the Son willingly and readily submitting it, himself to it in order that you and I might be forgiven and might become the children of God. Oh, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, was put to death by his own father. My riches gain, I count but loss and poor contempt of all my pride. All my self-righteousness, all the nonsense. There I see these things. God the Eternal, in all the glory of his father's heart, giving his own son up to such a death for me. And indeed I therefore see in that cross the harmony of all the divine attributes. I see holiness and love. I see mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. I see all the eternal attributes of the everlasting God, all of them displaying themselves at the same time. No contradiction between the righteousness, the justice, and the love and the mercy and the compassion. They're all there, and they're all there in the plenitude of the Godhead. There's only one thing to say when you've seen things like that. And it is this. God forbid 
that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is there I know God as he is. And as my father. And I see his glorious character. Vindicated to the last iota. And therefore I trust my soul to him. I rest upon his word. The unchanging. Everlasting God. Do you react like that to the cross my friend? Have you seen these things in the cross? The Son, the Father, and the Holy Ghost sustaining the Son. He offered himself through the eternal Spirit on our behalf to God. Oh, yes. This is what decides whether you're a Christian or not. Don't tell me about your good works. I'm not interested. Don't tell me you're a church member. I'm not a bit interested. Are you glorying in this? Is this everything to you? Is this life to you? Are you ready to die rather than deny this glorious message? That's what a Christian is. And unless we glory in the cross, we haven't seen it. And if we haven't seen it, we don't really believe it. And if we don't believe it, we are yet in our sins. And should we die like that, we will go to judgment and we will go to hell, my friends. Your eternal, everlasting destiny depends upon this one thing. Have you seen that God there has provided the only way whereby you can be forgiven and become a child of God and go on to inherit the glories of eternal bliss. May God have mercy upon all and by his Spirit open our eyes to see the glory of the cross. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>